Turn to Matthew 6. Our text today is going to be Matthew 6, starting in verse 16. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're anything like me, sometimes you completely and utterly miss the point of some activity or some duty. I was reminded of this this week. Uh, If you were uh, raised in, in elementary school in the 90s and in Washington, you were part of a kind of guinea pig program called the WASL. And so what the WASL was, it was a standardized test, and uh, Washington, I assume, still does standardized testing. But we were this guinea pig in which we would take these standardizing tests every couple years, but they didn't count for anything. Eventually, they would. But in my generation, when I was in third grade and fourth grade, they counted for nothing. And so I remember the first time I took my WASL test. It was a big deal. And the teacher came in, and he said he, he handed out the tests and little scantrons. And then, as if it was yesterday, I vividly remember what he said. He said, now this test counts for nothing. Uh, you won't be held back. Uh, your grade isn't affected by this. You just have to take it. And when you take it, you can have a snack, and you can go in the back, and you can read. Now, fourth grade Stephen had a plan, and I thought, doesn't count for anything. It doesn't matter. So I said, okay, well, I'm just going to fill in random bubbles, right? And I, you can't do it too fast because then, you know, they'd be on to you. So I slowly just filled in bubbles, you know, picked some A's, some B's, some C's, and just went through it. I was so proud of myself, I started boasting to my friends that this is what I was doing because, again, it didn't count for anything. And so as my stomach growled more, I, you know, I quickly did this, and then I got to spend the rest of the day after finishing the Wassel test, sitting in the back, reading comic books I'd smuggled in. And I thought this was amazing. I finished and kind of figured out this system. And actually later on in college, actually I was telling my parents and kind of saying that I did this and their faces just looked white. And I said, "Uh uh-oh. And they said, we got called into the principal's office. And I said, really? And they go, yeah, we thought you had a learning disability. (laughs) And so I said, oh. um." Now, to their credit, they never reneged on their promise. I wasn't held back. um, And my parents, we all kind of get a kick out of it, right? But the point of me actually telling you this story is that I thought the point of this exercise I thought the point of taking the wassail was just, I had to just fill in random bubbles in a scantron. I thought that was the point. Little did I know there was an actual point to my generation taking the wassail. They wanted to figure out if teachers were actually teaching to an appropriate level, if on average we were actually scoring in the right kind of level. And so, I mean, who'd who'd have thought that that was actually the point? I didn't, but that was the point. Now, When it comes to fasting, when it comes to spiritual disciplines generally, I think, I think, sometimes we just miss the point. We miss the mark. We miss the whole point of the activity, and especially when it comes to fasting. Uh, I I don't know 
I don't know if you're aware of this, but this week we are entering into a week of prayer and fasting. We have done this every single year where we take some time out and we pray and we fast. And as I was thinking about it, I actually wonder if you were raised in the church in any degree, if you've actually ever heard of a sermon or heard of a lecture or had any teaching on the essence of fasting. I would probably assume that the number of those who actually have is probably pretty small. So, what is baptism? Or sorry, what is fasting? Well, here's the interesting thing. This is where baptism comes in. Uh, the word fasting actually comes uh, up in the Bible actually more than baptism. 77 times in all, the word fasting comes up, which isn't to say fasting is more important than baptism. It is just to say that this is actually a really important hallmark of the church to which I fear we actually neglect. And so, this is my humble and simple objective tonight. I want to talk practically, talk candidly, and I pray prophetically about the spiritual discipline of fasting. And I pray that your hearts are warmed, that you're excited, that you get what this is all about, and that as a result of this, your heart is warmed to the gospel and what God has actually done for you. So our text today is Matthew 6, starting in 16. But before I jump into that, I think I need to make some general comments about fasting. So in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, there are seven examples, seven kind of types of fasting that we see in the Bible. One, we might call a, a regular fast. It's a common fast. And what that is, is people fasting from sun up to sun down, taking food out of their diet. We see this, Jesus does this in Matthew 4. There is what we call, might call a partial fast, in which you intentionally restrict some sort of food from your diet. We see this in Daniel 1, in which Daniel becomes a vegetarian. There's an absolute fast. We see this in Ezra 10.6, in which a person doesn't drink any water or any food for an allotted period of time. There's a supernatural fast, and we see this in Moses in the book of Exodus, in which when he's on the Mount Sinai, he actually fasts from food and water for 40 days, in which God, it says, actually sustains him spiritually as a result of this fast. There are private fasts done in secret, public fast or kind of congregational fast, which is actually what we're doing. And we see this in the book of Acts. And then there are national fasts, a whole political national entity fasting, which we see in Jonah when the Ninevites actually, as a, as a result of their contrition at Jonah's sermon, they actually call for a political and national fast. So, generally speaking, there are seven types of and examples of fasting in the Bible. Now, fasting was an ordinary part of a Jew's life. But I think the interesting thing, we might assume that God just kind of mandated, oh, they had to fast all the time. But actually, in the Old Testament, the Jewish people, the people of God in the Old Testament, were only commanded to fast one day a week, one day a year. And it was on the Day of the Atonement. That was the only day they were mandated and commanded to fast. All other fasts we might call free will fasts or 
fast done under your own desire, under your own conscience, under your own discretion. And fasting in this kind of non-obligatory way, the way kind of we're doing it, and the way that Christians are doing it, is done for many reasons, actually. Uh, this week I was listening to a man, his name is Legan Duncan, he's the president of RTS, and he uh, gave a lecture on fasting, and he came up with eight different occasions, or eight different reasons for why people fast in the Bible. So the first is that sometimes people fast in the Bible as an aid to prayer. We see this in Daniel 9. Some fast in the Bible as a means to ask God for guidance. Uh, the church in Acts actually called for prayer and fasting before they elected elders. Some fast in the Bible for protection, for deliverance. Others fast as a means of contrition, right? Outwardly showing your repentance and confession. And so uh, people might fast, you might fast. Uh, others fast in the Bible as a means to show and exhibit humility, while others in the Bible fast because of a concern for the work of God, for revival, for churches to be planted, for missions to go forward in the world. Right? That's our theme this year. Uh, Jesus in the Bible fasted as a means of equipping himself from temptations, from Satan. And then finally, some fast in the Bible as an outward show of their worship of God. I mean, we might call this kind of a love offering. Fasting, just showing your desire and devotion to God. So if you, if you actually look at, I think most of you got a fasting guide. The word on the front is revival. Right? If you haven't, there's plenty more that you can grab on your way out. But this year, as we are praying as a church, the theme that we are talking about is revival. That we want to see revival sparked in our community. We want such a powerful and palpable expression of the Holy Spirit coming down, that people come to know Jesus, that people confess their sins, that people in bondage are actually freed from their bondage, all as a result of the Spirit's working and the proclamation of the gospel. That's why we are praying. And so I, I really do pray that this would be a helpful resource to use throughout the week. Now, I don't know about you, and I don't know where it happened, but at least when I was in college, we started doing some really weird things with fasting, some really weird things. I vividly remember having a conversation with a girl, and we were talking, and she was like, I think for Lent, because it was really cool to fast during Lent when I was in college. And she said, I, I think what I'm going to give up for Lent, I'm going to give up swearing. And I remember just thinking, shouldn't you just give that up? Like, um, or I remember a guy in my dorm room saying, I think, I think God's calling me to give up eating a donut for breakfast every morning. And I remember thinking, what? Like, just give it up. Like, like, when did fasting become, okay, I have this vice for this season of period, I'm just going to stop doing this vice, right? We just kind of substitute fasting and say, well, this is my new kind of Weight Watchers program. I'm just going to kind of, this is my new nutritional program. And yet, that's not what fasting is at all. So very, very simply, fasting is this. This is the definition of fasting. Fasting is a voluntary abstaining from food and sometimes drink for an allotted period of time for the good of our souls 
and our pleasure in God. Now we can broaden that definition, right? I mean, some of you are either pregnant or nursing or you have some medical conditions or some situation in which you can't actually fast from food and water. And so we can broaden this to talk about social media or we can talk about abstaining from television or some other rhythm of your life. But the goal, as it were, is the same. It's for your good, the good of your soul, and that we would deepen our pleasure in God. That we would deepen our pleasure in God. And if you've fasted to any degree, this isn't to say that it's easy. It's actually really hard. It's quite hard because it goes against everything in our society. Everything in our society because when you think about it, it's all about comfort. Right? From smartphones to social media to computers to even lazy boys. Right? Everything is about comfort. Think of every technology that's invented in the past couple years. What's its promise? In some way, this is going to make your life more comfortable and easy. And so it's really, really difficult when you even think about fasting because it's so countercultural. It pushes against everything. It pushes against our need and desire to be in control. And yet it's so good for us to do in seasons to kind of back away, to cut things out and to see what happens. I love this. There's a, there's a book by Richard Foster and it's about spiritual disciplines and there's an entire chapter on fasting. And this is what he says about fasting. He says that more than any other single discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. This is a wonderful benefit to the true disciple who longs to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We cover up what is inside us with food and other things, but in fasting, these things surface. If pride controls us, it will be revealed almost immediately. I mean, David said, I humble my soul with fasting. Anger, bitterness, jealousy, strife, fear, if they're within us, they will surface during fasting. Now, at first, you might rationalize that our anger is due to our hunger. Then we know that we are angry because the spirit of anger is within us. We can rejoice in this knowledge because we know that healing is available through the power of Christ. So fasting at its root, it's for our good and our pursuit of deepening our pleasure of God himself. But there's a dark side. There's a dark side to fasting and we actually see it in our text. So if you will, let me read to you Matthew 6, starting in verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But you fast. But when you fast, anoint your head, with, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So twice, I don't know if you notice it, twice the same clause comes out. When you 
fast. So we might think, oh, Jesus might be against fasting. Actually, uh, later on in Matthew, John's disciples come to Jesus and they say, hey, why don't your disciples fast? And he says, well, when the bridegroom's here, you celebrate. But when I leave, and he's talking about his death and resurrection, he says, then that's when you fast. And so Jesus isn't against fasting. In our text here, he actually assumes it. He says, when you fast, assuming that we all are doing it. And so not only that, is he not against fasting, but there's a common problem, and that's what he's against, a common problem of fasting. And if you read actually Matthew 6 in its context, you'll notice that first, Jesus talks about giving. This is actually part of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And chapter 6 starts with Jesus describing and actually contrasting two types of people. The hypocrites or the Pharisees, that's who he's talking about, the teachers of the law, the spiritual elite of his day. And he's saying, okay, there are those of you, you hypocrites, you Pharisees, you spiritual leaders, and you give like this, but I want you to give like this. And then he says, there's, there's some of you who actually pray like this, you hypocrites. And then he goes on to explain how they pray. And he says, but I want you to pray like this. And then he ends here with fasting. He says, you hypocrites, you teachers of the law, you fast like this. And then he's in a call to the positive aspect. And so actually in the Sermon on the Mount generally, but specifically in these three sections, what Jesus is doing is he's contrasting true religion and false religion true religion and false religion. And he's going to suggest what it actually looks like specifically to fasting, what true religion looks like. So a Pharisee, when it came to fasting, he fasted twice a week. A typical Jew would, he would fast once a week, which shouldn't surprise us, right? I mean, these were the spiritual lead of the day, right? They were like, well, you know, all I'll raise you one fast per week. I mean, it's, of course I'm going to do this. I'm the spiritual elite. And so they would fast twice as much as a typical Jew. But we see that it actually goes further. They actually take it a step. Not only would they fast twice a week, but they would also change their attire and make everyone know that they fasted. They publicly portrayed and displayed their fasting for everyone to see. Now, kind of as a modern day analogy, um, and I don't know when this started and things have changed a little bit, but if you went to a funeral, you would wear black, right? That was kind of a typical uh, thing that we would do as Americans, and a lot of other cultures do this. And the reason why you do this is wearing black was an outward symbol that you were mourning. It was a display that you were in mourning, and so what was going on here is the Jews actually had a, uh, a thing that they would do too. We read it all over the place in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. When people were in mourning, they had sackcloth. And so they would wear a certain type of outfit that would kind of symbolize and display to everyone, hey, I'm in mourning. And then they put ashes over their face. And so you couldn't, you knew that someone was in fasting. It was clear to everyone. And so what the Pharisees were doing where they were actually adorning kind of t-shirts that said, hey, look, I'm in mourning, I'm fasting, aren't I cool? That's what they're doing for everyone to see. They were displaying these kind of mourning, gloomy outfits so that everyone could see them. 
And I think it's interesting because Jesus actually even says, hey, they, they disfigured their face too in verse 16. <laughs> Real commitment, right? I don't even know what that looks like, but it sounds like commitment to me. And so Jesus is appalled at this practice. And like the good doctor that he is, he doesn't just talk about the surface of it. He actually gets to the root of why they're actually doing it. Why they're displaying their outward fasting for everyone to see. And it says that they were doing this. They were flaunting their fasting because they wanted to be seen by others. They wanted approval. They wanted social acceptance. They wanted to be noticed, to be accepted by the spiritually elite, right? It's completely and utterly ironic, but they were proud of their humility. And this can happen so subtly in our lives. When I was in college, I went and spent nine weeks in Africa and uh, I learned early on that not all cultures do things the same way. And so in my family, and in, I think, most American families, the big meal was dinner, but not in West Africa. And so at dinner time, there were sometimes just some fried plantains that you'd eat for dinner. And so being the gentleman that I was, or I thought I was, I decided that I was going to always wait in the back and let the ladies go and eat, all, and eat the food. And unfortunately, some nights, there wasn't enough food to go around. There wasn't enough fried plantains. And so, slowly but surely, I actually lost 20 pounds on this, which, if you look at me, might surprise you. Um, but I did. And what happened is some of the ladies on this trip started encouraging me and praising me for my chivalry. They started praising me and saying, wow, that's so good of you. That's so kind of you to wait in the back. And subtly, and I didn't even see it coming, I loved it. I'll be completely honest. I'm ashamed of it, but I loved it. I loved their praise. I loved being that guy. I loved being the gentleman. And in all honesty, that praise, it fed me. And that praise trumped by far anything that I could have set my eyes on to eat. It would have taken a lot for me to actually go in the front of the line because I so relished their praise and their approval. And I didn't, I didn't even see it coming. I mean, that's how insidious this can be in our lives and in our hearts. I mean, sometimes we do this with relationships. You're having a conversation. You're telling a story that you know is going to be funny. But you've got to shave off a little, exaggerate a little, so that you get more applause, so you get more people to approve of the story. Right? We do this if you're having a Bible study, maybe, and you get to that verse where you're like, ah, oh, this could be awkward. And so you just kind of skip over it because you don't want to offend someone necessarily. Or you do this when you try to say, oh, I'm, I'm going to pretend like I'm, I'm not struggling with something. And so you defend or you deflect all the while trying to flaunt all the while trying to show that you really are something that you're not, right? I don't know about you, but I caught myself recently. I was talking about The Bachelor, and I was like, I would never 
watch that. And I was, you know, my nose was up in the air. I was so much better than everyone who watches The Bachelor, Bachelorette, or whatever. Sorry, guys. Um, just, and then I'm all the while binging on Friends, right? Right? Or whatever. And so e- it's so easy to just be like, oh, I'm, I'm so much better than that. And then you take a close look at what you're actually consuming and working and, and watching, and you're like, no, nah, I'm, I'm just trading in one vice for another. Right? We... I think we get so high on our horses and at times just look down at the Pharisees because overt pride and showing and flaunting, it's just not cool. It's, it's, not ta- it's taboo right now. And so we get on our high horses and we look down at the Pharisees and yet we, I think, in manipulative and kind of a sleight of hand in more sophisticated ways, we do the same thing all the time. I mean, if I'm completely being honest with you, sometimes I feel like we're just all first graders just waiting to get picked for the kickball team, right? Just waiting to play four square and just hoping that we get noticed. Or whatever favorite recess game you played, we're all just those first graders just wanting people's approval, wanting to be noticed. And how are people noticed? Well, you got to get out in the front. You got to flaunt. You got to exaggerate. You got to do these certain things in order to be known. And so subtly, but quickly, we start living for people's approval and start displaying our good works all the while, desiring to see them. And I, I think this is the really weird paradox of this whole thing is on one level, we want to be seen, but on another, we definitely don't want to be seen. Um, I'm going to be transparent for a moment. Um, About uh, maybe a month or two, I was driving, and as I was driving, uh, Adele was coming on, and I started rolling in the deep. And I was singing, and I was enjoying myself, and I was about to hit the note, okay, that even Adele, I feel like, would be impressed by. And I was about to hit it, and I stopped at a stoplight, and I turned, and there's this woman staring at me, right? And she kind of did the crinkled nose, kind of like, like, what are you doing? And I had a couple options to do, right? I could do what maybe a weirdo would do and just like own it and just keep singing, which I didn't do, right? I did what any, I feel like, respectable person would do when they're seen in that situation, right? You kind of slowly turn off the music or turn it down and, you know, you play it cool and then you definitely don't make eye contact ever again until the light goes, right? Which is what I do. We want to be seen, but we don't really want to be seen. We want to be seen in part. There's parts of our identity, parts of our lives, parts of our stories that we like to put forward. Then there's others that's like, no, I don't want to be seen in that way. And so... We hide, we protect, or we project some spiritual nature because that's what people really want, right? That's how I'll be accepted. If they really knew, well, I don't know if they'd know what they would like. I don't know if they'd like what they would see. And so there's a sense in which we're all spiritually tone deaf. The only difference is the Pharisees were just overt and trying to correct with lip singing and trendy clothes. And I think the interesting thing is, what is it 
that the Pharisees actually get in return. This is, I think, fascinating. Jesus actually says they're going to get their reward. Right? They actually get what they want. They want approval. They want the world to see them. They want their friends to see them and get their approval. And what is it that Jesus says they're going to get, their reward? That very thing. They're going to be seen. They're going to have their approval. I mean, it'll rust, it'll rot, it's fickle, but Jesus says, I'm going to give them that which they set their heart on. But see, the Pharisees, like me in the fourth grade doing the Wassel test, they just, they're missing the point. Fasting is not about getting people to notice you. Fasting isn't about getting people's approval. It's not about the performance of it. It's not about beating the person next to you, right? Oh, you fasted for five days. I could do seven. You have a quiet time for an hour. I could do two, right? For those competitive amongst us, right? We know how this can all play itself out, right? Fasting, in that sense, it's not man-centered at all. That's the, Jesus is saying that's the false religion. That's the false religion of getting so that people can see, um, your good works when you give, or that's like praying those kind of super califragilisticexpialidocious prayers, you know, where it's all about the words, it's all about these lofty theological words, and it has no meaning just because you just want to be thought that you're smart and spiritual. And he says, that's not, that's not, that's not true religion. And it's not true religion when you fast as a, a mere agent to gain people's approval. It's just man-centered religion. So if that's false religion, and if that's missing the point, what's true religion? What's spiritually fasting in such a sense and such a way in which we hit the mark? And I think Jesus gets at it, and it's really interesting. He says, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, which is really basic. Just be normal. Because in those days, everyone in a daily way, they anointed their heads and they washed their face. That was just a typical thing. He's pretty much saying, hey, when you fast, take a shower, right? If you take a shower every day, take a shower every day. If you do your hair, do your hair. If you put on makeup, put on makeup. Just live the true, your true normal lives. Just be normal. That's what he's getting at when you fast. Don't draw needless attention to your fasting. Just go about your business. Just cut out food. Just be normal. And these people that he's talking about, that he's desiring them to fast like, they're, they're just not drawing attention to themselves. Right? The Pharisees went out of their way to draw attention to themselves and to exhibit their fasting. And Jesus is saying, just, just don't go out of your way. Be yourself. And then Jesus gives the reason for this. He gives the reason for why we should do this. And it's this, because fasting is by nature God-centered and not man-centered. Our attention should not be on others and how they see us, but on if God sees us. So God seeing us is actually the whole point of fasting. Now in the Bible, when God sees someone, it's not a good thing, okay? Usually it means duck and cover because of curses about to come, right? When God sees someone in their brokenness and sinfulness, it's not a good thing. 
We see it in Genesis 3 when he, he interacts with Adam and Eve after they sin and they're naked and he sees them for their true vulnerability, their true brokenness and sin, and they hide. God seeing us is a terrifying thing unless, unless he filters that gaze towards us with a lens of grace. If he filters that gaze, if he sees us, but he sees us through the gospel, then we have hope. And actually, that hope starts really early in your Bibles. If you go to Genesis 16, you read a really interesting story about Hagar. So you have Abraham and this promise, and I talked about this last week, actually, but there's this promise that comes to to Abraham, and so he goes. He's going to be a mighty nation. He's going to have people that are just going to be so numerous that you can't even count them. There's going to be this messianic promise. And so he goes, and he and his wife, year after year after year, they just can't have kids. And so they're a little bit frustrated. And so his wife says, I got an idea. Why don't you take my maid, Hagar, and why don't you bear a child with her? Maybe that's the child of promise. And so this happens, and Hagar gets pregnant, and Abraham's wife just loathes her for it, just hates her, has disdain. And so she does what any respectable woman would do. She runs away. She can't live under those crushing burdens. And as she's away, and as she ran away, an angel of the Lord comes to her. And first he blesses her, and then we read this. After the angel of the Lord blesses her, Hagar says these words after she calls upon the name of the Lord. She says, You are a God of seeing, for you truly hear, for you truly hear have I seen, and you look at me clearly. God sees her with the eyes that are not man-centered, but they're actually gospel-centered. Uh, Many generations later, we actually read of a similar situation, and it's right before David is anointed, and uh, the prophet Samuel is there, and he's got all the brothers laid out, David and all his brothers, and he's looking. And Samuel's assuming, you know, based on outward appearance, that he knows which one will be king. And then we read these words. God said to Samuel, Do not look at the appearance or at the height or of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart. And then when the time came, Christ himself came. And one of the beautiful things about his perfection is that he, was, he saw perfectly. Right? 20-20, or if there's such a thing, zero-zero. He had perfect eyesight, eyesight and saw everything perfectly So when people came to him and said, okay, this guy is blind, Uh, who sinned that he might be blind? Jesus saw exactly what was the situation, and he actually corrected their faulty logic. Or when the Pharisees tried to trap him, Jesus saw perfectly into their ploy. Or when Judas tried to betray him, Jesus saw that it was actually through a betrayal 
that he was going to actually save the world. When Satan tried to get him to quit, when he tried to tempt him to stop, he saw right through the ultimate deceiver. And he called him out. He called him to account. Because Jesus saw as no person has ever seen. And yet, in the midst of seeing the most vile parts of this world, in the midst of seeing the brokenness, true brokenness, true stories of ugliness, amongst seeing all of us, every person that's ever lived, seeing the true skeletons in our closet, he still does something. Even though he sees us as no person has ever seen another person, he still dies for us. I mean, he sees all of us. He sees me and you, the true you, the, the you of your nightmares maybe. And yet, he dies out of love and then he stamps his approval on a hill called Calvary for all to see. I mean, the father who at Jesus' baptism and at the Mount of Transfiguration, who gazes down at Jesus and says, in whom I'm well pleased, that pleasure that the Father has for the Son, now God has for us, which is outrageous. And that's our reward. There's reward talk in the last verse, in verse 18, it says you will receive your reward. And that's our reward. We don't get man's approval. We don't get the world's approval. (laughs) But we get the best approval. We get God's approval because our religion isn't man-centered. It's Godward. So imagine for a second you were an orphan. And imagine you were living in an orphanage with thousands of boys and girls. And imagine that you were wise enough and you were getting old enough to realize that you probably weren't going to get adopted. You looked out and you realized, well, there's more charismatic boys and girls that would be picked, that there were boys and girls who were more talented, they were smarter, they were cuter, and you had a a litany of reasons as to why your time was cut short. You probably would never get adopted and picked. And, you know, families would come in and out, and they'd huddle everyone together, and you knew that just no one saw you. You were just in a sea of normalcy. Then one day, the man comes, and he gathers, and you come, and you're standing in the back amongst thousands of boys and girls, and for the first time ever, this man sees you, and he looks at you, and he gazes at you, and then he whispers to an employee, and they call out your name, and instantly you know that your life has changed. You see, in that moment, it doesn't matter what the employees might think of you. In that moment, it doesn't matter if you feel gifted or average or whatever. The only thing that matters in that moment is the Father's word, is the Father saying, I want to adopt that one. His approval is the only approval that's important in that moment because at the end of the day, that's how God looks at all of us. 
And so we don't fast so we can kind of twist God's arm and get his approval. Right? We, are, we already have it. God's approval was hung on Calvary thousands of years ago. And so we fast as a child fast. We fast like my son. What I mean by that is my son from time to time will run up to me unprovoked, unsolicited, and he'll run up and give me a hug and say, Daddy, I love you. Now in that moment, do I approve of and take pleasure in him more than I did before he did that? And the answer is no. No, I don't love him anymore when he does that. And yet, it's a, it's a beautiful moment. But, but my approval on my best days is unwavering. My son tells me he loves me because he takes pleasure in our relationship. Because it's his way of showing his love and devotion and affection towards me. My son hugs me and says he loves me because that's what a son does to a father. That's the natural implications of our relationship. And that, for us, is why we fast. It's a natural byproduct of being a child of God to say, amidst all of the world's pleasures, we're going to give up some to remind us that our pleasure, our joy, and our longing rest solely, wholly, and fully in Christ himself. And to that end, I pray that your weeks would be glorious, filled with God doing amazing things in your life, amazing fruit, and that as a result, Corvallis, the branch, and this world would be a different place. Would you guys pray with me?